This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Just kind of go around the room. I'm Robert. I'm the guy that ends up running this thing as the kind of the main host and probably who you've connected with more on Instagram and all that kind of stuff. And then you got yeah. Scott Johnson. Uh, I'm the guy that's former Army. Scott Johnson is from the UK. He's the British engineer, former sapper EOD guy. And then you got Brian Cole is the other guy. And Brian Cole is the PJ, Air Force PJ. Okay. Nice What's to meet up, you Sabina? All. Good to meet you. Good, Good to meet you. Well, you just uh, came back from deployment, so you're probably used to uh, eating, uh, what, drinking rippets and staying up to like four o'clock in the morning? Oh, yeah. I, I never heard about rippets before uh, I came to Iraq. Um, we usually just drink uh, Monster and, uh, and Red Bull. Yeah. So when I saw like the small cans in the defect, I was like, well, this is not going to work. Like, this is not enough. But uh, <laughs> it was like gold. Uh, yeah. Every night shift. I uh, I stayed like alive on um, on ribbit. It was it was awesome. Yes. I miss them. So many people uh, get addicted to these things. I can't even have, by the way, monsters and all that. I don't know what it does to you guys, but it just seems like be way too much caffeine for me. Maybe I'm already wired too high or something. I don't know, but uh, uh, it, it lights me up too. I'm with you there, Rob. Oh. I mean, it seems like guys are making like custom pouches for their kits and stuff to put rippets in. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, yeah, off. yeah, I've seen that too. It's, it's serious. Yeah, I mean they yeah. they take it real serious, and, and then of course start mixing mixing alcohol with it when you get back here. Oh my God, yes, no, 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 don't do that. It's, it's... or or while you, while you're still over there. Oh yeah, well I didn't mention that, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I never oh, no, heard no. about that. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sabina, you'll you'll uh, you'll have to tell us a little bit about your background and everything, so that uh, for those that are kind of listening, they'll learn a bit a little bit more about you as we kind of go on through the show. But maybe you can kind of start off with where you're from, the branch of service, and, and uh, what you do, and all that kind of stuff, and then we'll roll all into it. Okay. Um, well, I'm an army medic. I've been an army medic for six years uh, in the Danish army. I was actually uh, supposed to, well, when I started, out, I wanted to join the infantry, but uh, I saw some pretty good guys doing some, uh, some medical stuff and kind of like catch me. So I was like, well, I want to do that stuff. It looks cool. And I heard like a lot of good stuff about it. And yeah, I've just been there ever since. Uh, all our medics are like connected in one place in Denmark. So we like at one base and we go like attached to the infantry when we go on exercises or deployments. Um, so we like a, a big unit, but so everybody knows each other and yeah. Um, and I went on my first deployment last year in August. We deploy for usually six months. Um, it was it was awesome. Uh, I would have loved if the, if I've been to Afghanistan too, but unfortunately that thing closed down just right about I started. Uh, so, like my first mission was very uh, well, kind of slow compared to what what have been like like during the other years, but I also think it's good because yeah, it gave me like a lot of experience and I know a lot of the other guys will be like, oh, we just like got thrown out to like this war zone because uh, like in our army, women can can like join uh, the front line too. Uh, I know that's uh, not what they do in a lot of the other armies, but 
in our army, if if a female can do the same thing as a male can, like we don't lower the standard standards, we do uh, the same thing, uh, male and female. So it's not, it's like, well, we, they put a lot of waiting, like it's the best man or female to the job. Uh, I think it's very good. Yeah, I, I know like over in the British Army, Scott, that's one of the things, or the British military for that matter, we're probably one step behind uh, in terms of, or maybe even further than one step, but at least we're starting to do a lot of that, as you know, Sabina, here in the U.S., but um, Scott, for the British military, I think they're they're a little bit further behind than us in accepting women in those types of roles, right? Yeah, it's, it's the, the British military is still very sexist, really. Um, and for me, Sabina's hit the nail on the head. It, it's the right person for the job. If you can do the job to the required standard, it, it doesn't matter what sex you are. Um, and I, I was, I was in service when um, females started coming into the engineers, and uh, the standards were slightly different. But some of the soldiers that were coming through were more than capable and of a higher standard than some of the males in, in the engineers. So it shouldn't be an issue of gender. It should be an issue of capability. And if you can do it, you can do it. I think the key there that you said, though, Sabina, is that you don't lower the standards. And so I think uh, then it would come down to, I think it's still subjective because there would be a lot of guys that would still say, yeah, but how do we know that the cadre or that the schoolhouse or uh, the command didn't get pressure from above? And so, you know, we didn't see everything. So maybe the standards were in effect lowered. But if you guys have been doing it for a longer period of time, you've kind of taken care of that. It's evened itself out over time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think like we uh, like bullets don't fly uh, slow after females. So in the end of the day, we have to do the same stuff. Uh, and our PT test has always been the same. And I just think it's just always been normal. Uh, well, it's not that it's like a lot of females because it requires you are a certain kind of person and also like physically, like a lot of female can reach that level and that's that's fine. But the few that can, they, they turn out very good. Uh, and I think it's, well, what I have heard, it's good to have some females sometimes uh, on the teams because it makes another environment. Uh, that's what we've seen. Uh, but yeah, in, in the end of the day, they have to do the same thing, and they like they can like lower the standard just to well, we need to have one female or two females at, at a team. It has yeah. to like yeah. And see, that's actually really good when you think uh, that's part of the challenge that I think we have is that. Um, at some point, there starts becoming one of these requirements. Well, we we need to have at least 5% or 10%. Well, once you start doing that, then – and there's not females that want to try to attain that or there are not females that can make it. That's where things get a little squishy and people have some issues with it. But the fact that you guys actually starting off with the physical training tests have the exact same standards – even with that, you know, in the U.S., we have different standards. And uh, because of that, you know, it already starts setting that divide. And then when you go to the schoolhouse, if it was always a male-dominated school where certain requirements for physical uh, uh, capabilities was there, and you allow it to be the female score, then you, in a sense, you've lowered the standards. You can't then make it, you know, where it was the, uh, the male standards, if that makes sense. 
There was a recent push in pararescue and a lot of the other Air Force, like Battlefield Airmen programs, to revamp the whole PT test because of the push for women in these jobs. So I was part of like the the development for that test. So I had to take it like eight times. Um, and some of the times it was like one week and then the next week. And it was, it's a rough test. So basically what they did is they took 15 events. And it's like you have your run in there. You have a deadlift in there. You have pull-ups. So basically it, it is like the full spectrum of fitness. And they you, you get certain points off each, each event. And at the end of it, you have to be above a threshold. And so that's mm. what they've implemented for everybody. And what we found is – a lot of the dudes like started failing it right away because guys would just like focus on cardio in their training and they would forget all about weight bearing. So when they got to that ruck, they'd score a two and that would put their that score down. So it was a gut check for everyone for sure. And it up it actually raised the standard too. So well what's that what that's gonna do, but <laughs> yeah, I don't either, but I think that's actually a good uh, standard because then it's more equal. You have a point at which everybody they've measured that this is a, a point where everybody should be in order to maintain a certain level of physical fitness for that particular skill uh, or job. And see, that makes more sense to me than and, and and maybe even if you don't know or you just know where you're supposed to come at. So we used to think about like, special forces assessment selection or something like that, where there uh, you don't know when uh, the ruck march is going to end. You don't know when this is going to happen and you just got to keep going and you push yourself to the limit. Uh, but there is a score that's actually being hidden. However that is, I don't know, but I think that's part of the problem when people know that there's a <clears throat> two separate measurements and that people are not graded equally and, or there's some level of subjectivity that might come in. Like Sabina said that there's uh, a certain percentage of individuals that have to be passed through or something of that nature. That's when things start getting a little hairy. There's a debate going on in the UK over the last probably six to nine months um, about females into special forces and altering the standard to facilitate that. That's, uh, that's not good. No, it, absolutely, and there's there's several prominent XSF guys who who've been voicing their concerns about it, you know, because you'll just lower the standard overall for people entering SF then, and ultimately that leads to casualties, uh, and you you can't start doing that. It's it's a certain physical difficultness for a reason. It's a certain mental uh, difficultness for a reason. And it, it's a, it's an, a selection process at the end of the day, and it weeds out the people who haven't got the fortitude and the you know the the capability when they're going to need it. And if you lower that standard, you're going to get the wrong people coming through. And that's that's not a male or female thing. That's general, right? And you know, and what what these guys were saying, if a female can pass selection, uh, SAS SBS selection then absolutely, why not serve? You've passed exactly the same physical test. And again, it comes back to the, it shouldn't be about gender. It should be about capability. If the standard is set, whatever your gender is or your background, if you can pass it, you can pass it, and then you should be accepted. So what do they say, What Sabina, what do they say about the fact that men and women are not physically made up the same? So are the standards, some people might be listening to this and go, okay, are the standards then... Um, really the same or have they been even lowered for the male side of it so that the women can, you know what I mean? So that it's kind of equal in, in sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, no, because uh, like I all, we just got a new PT test, which, which is very good. But the old one was like a, like a running test, which, which was the same for, for male and female. Um, and then it was like a core test where there was a lot of uh, static uh, exercises. Um, and we experienced that like a lot of males uh, actually failed. We had like a back test where we had to like stay uh, in the same position where they like lay on a bench and then have like an upper body out and they have to hold it up um, like 90 degrees. Um, and a lot of males fail that test because they're very heavy in their um, upper body. But a lot of females are strong, uh, like with the back and stuff, because that's how we built. Um, and so they were like, uh, well, females do better in this test. So like they couldn't even, well, I, I didn't think the, the test was like that good because it, I think the test should be what we use, like for example, lunges, because you kneel down when you go on patrols a lot with like a lot of weight. So you should be able to do that. I should think you should do pull-ups because at some point, if you're on a patrol, you might have to like pull yourself up somewhere and you can like expect people to help you. And I think you should do like rock march because you will always wear a lot of gear and rock march is what people usually fail on. And something we don't practice enough when we're home and everything is safe and everything is nice. Uh, also because like in Denmark, the environment is always, uh, well, cold. Probably in England too, but uh, and we wet in well, the UK normally. <laughs> yeah, it's it's shit here too. Uh, but uh, um, uh, so we don't have like the heat experience. Uh, so we can like go on yeah rock marches, but it's, it, it will never like give us the same picture. But if we can do like it here with a lot of weight and practice it a lot, a lot, it will be easier for us when we go like down south or where where are we gonna do? Um, but the new PT test is like more all around, like it's lunges and dips and pull-ups, deadlift and, you know, all the good exercises. Uh, yeah, so. they're definitely different. And what you're describing there makes a heck of a lot more sense. And then maybe this is a good segue because you were the first international woman to complete the expert field medical badge, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So last tell year. us a little bit about that. So yeah, it was last year. You did that over in uh, Germany, I take it. Yes, I did that in uh, Grafenburg. Um, did last year in March. Uh, we have been sending people. Uh, it's like an invite we have to get. Uh, the UK send people to and like all NATO partners can send uh, people to if they get like an invite. Um, and we have sent people like three times. Well, Three times with me and every time they send like five guys uh so i went to my boss and said hey next time you're gonna send one uh, i think we should like put a female to and i'll like to do it if that's okay and he was like oh, okay i'll like i'll put that in a note and then i got a message too late two weeks later uh you're going like, cool <laughs> yeah nice. yeah um so uh yeah we did some preparation for it and Thank God we had some people, uh, like the first time we had the, fi the five dudes, uh, one got it, uh, he's very good. Uh, and the second time we had two dudes uh, completing it out of five, it's very good too. So we were like leaning up a lot of the, uh, on them, like what to do, because we, we thought it was like, oh, we're going down, show what you can do, like uh, medical stuff, like do your, old, uh, do your own, uh, own thing, like... Uh, the structure and everything it's not like 
uh, it's like a two-hour uh, like movie manu- manuscript you have to memorize and do like exactly what they say exactly the time they say and you just have to like remember a lot of stuff um, so I didn't really know what to expect uh, before I came uh, also I haven't been talking English like for a long time no way and I yeah, I, I, well, I didn't when uh, I went, uh, and I, I actually just said, well, I want to go uh, because I, I read on the internet how hard it was for American people to get. So I was going like, well, this is not going to happen, but I'm going to try and do my best, and well, I'm going to get the, like be deployed in yeah five months later, so I can practice my English and get new contacts and just talk to people and stuff. Uh, so that's how I I went down there because no way in hell I was gonna get it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that was not gonna happen. <laughs> well, that's yeah. that's flipping awesome. I had no clue that you also didn't speak English prior to that. So did you end up going through some kind of a, uh, advanced English training or something, or how did you end up learning English so quickly? Um, when I was younger, I went to an English school. So when when I use English, I'm pretty fast at picking up talking. Uh, but if I don't use the language like for a long time, you know, you have to like start over and you have to translate everything before you you talk like in your head. And it's it's very hard for like the brain to always think about what you're going to say. But as like as soon as you do it, like a lot of times you just do it automatic like I do now, just talk. Uh, but yeah, it was very hard in the beginning because everything you had to learn, you have to like, oh, shit, what is that in English? And <laughs> Is like this on Danish, but shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. translates. That translates all the way across the board. Yeah, and I, I think the American people I was living with, uh, the female barracks, they were like, uh, because they were very nice to me and they helped me a lot. But sometimes when I said something, they're like, uh, "That's not how it's said." Like for example, <laughs> I remember one time I was like, "Oh, did you see the weather news?" Because that's how we like directly translate it in Danish, like. If we want to see like how the forecast is, uh, and they're like, "What the, f- yeah, what are you talking about?" It's like, <laughs> well, just how the weather is. And they're like, just laughing their ass off because, uh, well, we need to teach you something. Okay, fine. Yeah, no, yeah, that's awesome because uh, I mean that was an additional challenge on top of the physical and the mental challenge that you had to go through was the whole English and re-establishing that or remembering a lot of that and. So you're one up, I think, on uh, Brian, because Brian doesn't even have the EFMB probably, do you, Brian? Nah, I actually haven't heard of it until now. Get out of here. You uh, have never think, heard of I the expert. I think expert... it's an Army people. It is. It is Army. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. I think uh, actually a lot of Air Force guys, I don't know if they end up going to EFMB. I know a lot of uh, Air Force uh, or some Air Force end up going to like Ranger School and things like that. So I didn't know if you guys yeah. attended EFMB just to get the badge and certification and stuff. <laughs> No, they're they're pushing PJs to some potentially uh, sock them just like later on if they're more into like the special operations or special tactics side of things. But we do a lot of our medical training in house and that kind of qualifications just in there. It's kind of informal, formalized in pararescue, but not to everyone else. Um, but yeah, one thing that uh, Sabina, I don't know if you've You've been tracking on this, but the NATO Stockholm course that kicked off, I think, about two years ago. Do you all send people to that? I'm not exactly sure what it is. Where is where is it like uh, at? It's in Fullendorf. Fullendorf. I probably just butchered that so bad. 
It's in Germany. Um, well, maybe some of the the soft people will go there. Uh, like we kind of divided, like because we are allowed to do uh, like some things, and they can do some more because they have like more uh, courses and doing stuff. So yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I'll still pass you the contact information on that. It's it's kind of a new thing. So yeah. Your background is not in that community. Um, I take it there, even within the Danish army, then. Uh, yeah, they're like stationed in another place where we are, yeah. um, and they get more advanced courses because uh, they do stuff and are out where they might not be a doctor, so they probably need to do more stuff than than we can do. Uh, yeah, so they get more advanced training. Um, I'm not. Uh, I haven't seen how what courses they do. Uh, but I just know that they do more uh, advanced stuff than we do. Kind of jealous, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we talked with Brian. One of the things that we talked about initially uh, with him being a PJ is about medicine and how well it's advanced over time. Um, it's coming, having just come back from a deployment, uh, have you started seeing a lot of change between last year and even this last deployment that you went on in medical technology and some of the practices that they're using? Well, when I was, uh, we got warned before we got there, like, well, it's like old school, <laughs> everything they have, it's like, uh, very old. So you, you get like kind of used to do it the old uh, fashioned way. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think it's good because, uh, with all this technology we have like today, you, you don't get to do a lot of stuff. Um, so I think it's good to practice with uh, with the old uh, stuff, um, but yeah, um, it's. Uh, I was very happy to to like work with other nations because they all have like different gears, and every time a new team moved in uh, or they rotated, they will bring new stuff, and it would be stuff I've never seen before. Uh, so you get a lot of experience, and well, in the end of the day, it's it's the same equipment we have, but still a bit different uh, but you get like taught to do different stuff um, and use their equipment and it just gives you a lot of experience and I was very happy about it uh, yeah so Bina were you all doing any of the like whole blood on target like with the golden minute golden second boxes uh, yeah we had uh, we had some of that, that but uh, they um, it was only when the when the Norwegian was there because they used it. Uh, when they left, we uh, didn't have it anymore. I know that there was uh, some recent technology. I can't, I'm trying to remember. Wasn't it Mark, Scott, that uh, came on and was talking about uh, some of the stuff that they did with him and saving his life and saving that his... That was 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's not, not not so recent, but um, yeah, he was, he was the first triple amputee um, to survive from the U.K., Mainly down to the some of the new techniques they uh, they were trying on on him with intervene or intra in the bone. Brian, help me out. Intraosseous. There you go. <laughs> uh, Sabina so. can nail that one too. <laughs> <laughs> they probably gave him a sternal IO and then pushed some kind of advanced fluid like freeze dried plasma. That was stuff I experienced in Europe before I ever uh, got to kind of get my hands on it in the United States. No, it's, it's cool, especially like the fluid uh, technology, well, not technology, but the ability to get that fluid is kind of the technology of it onto target has been really cool. I know we've seen uh, the Rangers, are their medics are really 
like kind of spearheading like the whole blood program and being able to get like that quality that is the standard but they have it at point of injury and uh, a lot of people are trying to follow along with that i think the uh, the rangers are actually going through a lot of the special forces uh training now aren't they as part of their medic training just because of the advances that are required on the battlefield and they they experience a lot too so just the data that they can draw to keep driving the right development in the right places you know they're spot on for it right for the expert field medical badge Sabina, did you notice that there were a lot of technologies or things or, or differences between what you've learned within your medical training and that in which the U.S. Army uses in their, through the course or in their day-to-day lives? Uh, yeah. Um, well, EFMB hasn't changed since 1965, I think. Oh, wow. And I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, it's, yeah oh. it hasn't. Uh, and that's, I think that's the main part, like, you know, the people who have, who have the badges, it's like everybody, everybody been like through the same uh, because it haven't changed. So, so I didn't really, I didn't really gain any knowledge uh, besides uh, remembering a lot of stuff. I can imagine course. though, Sabina, that you're out of like you're an out of the box thinker when it comes to medicine because of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like and like I can remember a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. We just have to remember like memorize a lot of stuff and. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't go. I didn't go from uh, from the course and like got a lot of knowledge. Like, oh, I didn't know that uh, because everything was like outdated. All the procedures and wow, just everything. Wow, that must have been so tough to go back in time. I mean, you just educated me because I had no clue that the EFMB is still stuck basically in the Stone Age when it comes to the testing and procedures. You would think that that would keep up with the time and challenge an individual because of what it's supposed to represent, at least. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, well, I was a bit surprised, too, even though I heard about it before I went there. I was like, well, it can't be true that we are practicing stuff that was that's so old yeah. uh, and that we're never going to use. Because basically, basically, everything you went through when the day was over and if you passed the, the lane, you just have to forget everything you learned and just start like learning new stuff. Yeah, uh, totally. That totally makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, back in the day, tourniquets were not used in the same fashion. You weren't, you didn't apply them at the same time that you do now. I mean, you would have to, you know, usually it was one of the latter stage things that you would do, not one of the first things that you would do. You know, I mean, it was like today, I would think it would be in a lot of cases backwards medicine. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree. Um, That's unfortunate. But yeah, it, it is a bit. But I think I still think like uh, the main thing about the course is like everybody's been through the same thing, and that's why they won't change it because the the only people who can grade this is people who have the batch. Uh, so the people who are like judging you when you uh, do the thing, they've been through the same thing. So when you try to like complain or whatever, uh, they'll be like, "Well, I've been there." So. Yeah. Don't complain about it. And that's yeah. not a good response, though. I mean, you're not going to grow and <laughs> yeah, you're not going to grow and improve as an organization. So it was more of the physical side of it then is where they taxed you. If you if you're not spending a lot of your time within this program being taxed on the mental side of it, then the only way that they could really tax you, other than having to learn 1965 medical procedures, is to to be physically taxed. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was very surprised about how hard it was uh, physically because I have no problem doing rock marches like I have never have any issues ever but from the from day one 
uh, every time we have like one week where it's uh, training week where you go through all the stuff. Uh, and then there's like testing week afterwards where you do the testing. Uh, and every time you go to a lane, you have to rock like, well, it was between three and four Ks. And you do that very, very fast, like, because you need to train for the, the final rock, which is 19.4 miles, I think. Uh, oh, wait, 12 miles. 12 miles, yeah, 12 miles. Uh, I was thinking case. You guys use miles. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they were, we had to train for that during a... What was the time event? What was it, 12 miles and what? It was in three hours. Uh, with all your gear, you have a, a, a backpack and yeah, helmet on and all your gear. Um, then you have the the gas mask you guys carry on your tie, the the gray one very annoying yeah uh, yeah yeah that too and your weapon and you couldn't use your sling on the weapon like to put over you have to like hold your weapon in a ready position and everybody was like tired and everybody's feet was sore uh, i actually remember uh, the, the day before the rock uh, we had to do uh, a pee test because they need to see how our urine was like if it was very dark they could put like a mark on us uh, so they could see we were dehydrated and the, the medics will be like more aware of us. And I actually uh, snuck out of, uh, yeah, I didn't do it because I, I, I knew I was dehydrated. I didn't want a mark on me because it would be like, well, she's going to maybe pass out. I did, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least didn't wear a mark, you know, so yeah. yeah. Um, yeah because then because then you're just in a spotlight and they're kind of like expecting something to happen uh, yeah exactly that's good move yeah. yeah so i was like uh, oh did you i walked by the that was like a doctor standing outside the toilet so, oh did you uh, pee in a cup oh yeah i did like in the morning so no worries yeah that, <laughs> yeah didn't uh, I mean, it's it sounds like just with the experience of the efmb and kind of the medical stuff that you go through it's made you like an unconventional thinker in a sense when it comes to medicine and also just courses you go through. And I think just through my time in pararescue, I mean, that was one of the, the like biggest things for us is can you think outside the box? How can you make the most of what you have, you know, when you're given not the ideal situation, not the gear you're used to, can you still solve a problem? Can you problem solve? Can you think unconventionally out of the box? That, those are the kind of things I'm hearing. And that's like a hallmark of a, of a medic and a good medic at that. Yeah, exactly. And also, we uh, there was study halls every day for the the testing. Um, so we were up like five in the morning and went to bed at one because we had to study. So there was not a lot of uh, sleeping hours. So you learn to work under like lack of sleep, lack of food, lack of everything, and just be on like on all the time. No rippets or monsters or anything. I actually bought some monsters before because Graffin, yeah, Graffin will have like a, the best PX, like the best PX ever. So I went there before the whole thing started, just like, I'm just like 10 monsters. And they went to- Shotgun some monsters. Before. <laughs> yeah, but I, I didn't know when, when I'm supposed to uh, drink them because the American uh, people, they consider monster like, not like, like doping or anything, but it's like energy you can intake. And I was not allowed to. Yeah. And I didn't hide my monsters away. So there was this captain. He was like, uh, I heard that somebody told that uh, in your bed, there's like monsters underneath it. You're not allowed to drink him. Oh, really? I was like, yeah, 
oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I was just like popping monsters in the in the lanes, and people were just looking like, "What is she doing?" Sabina the rebel. <laughs> So, yeah, I didn't know. I was just like, why are you looking awesome. at me that way? Stop judging me. So is Graf, yeah. is Graf still this dusty place? Oh, my God, yes. But it also, uh, that was like hot weather, yeah. uh, cold weather, snow, um, raining, everything. It was just, yeah. what is this kind of place? Yeah. Good thing that place hasn't changed. Yeah, that that's, uh, brings back very fond memories. I used to go there all the time uh, when I was stationed over in Germany and... It, it was kind of the armpit for us when we had to go there. I used to hate going there. It was like you said, yeah. it's either cold, it's rainy, it's dusty, and they have the worst dust just because of all the vehicles that are going across it and making it really fine, you know, floating across the air. So, yeah, Rob, that place left a toll on your Army P t shirt that you still wake up in every morning. <laughs> That's right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you just keep picking on me, Mr. Marvel. So, uh, <laughs> So anyway, Sabina, it, yeah, it does sound like that the it really that the course and everything really built some character, if nothing else, and an opportunity for you to look at uh, medicine from a different perspective. Because I think in many cases, too many people they rely on equipment like Brian said or things, and and sometimes you got to think out of the box. And uh, with what you've got around you, uh, I I really appreciate that I was uh, invited to it, and I I was so happy I did it. I know there's a lot of different opinions about the course people calling like well the expert field memory badge because you have to remember all the things but personally for me it was uh, it was very important to get it and I also experienced in Iraq because we get this badge we can sew on our uniform and and it's an American thing you know with all the badges and stuff uh, yeah. we don't do that in, in Denmark you don't, you don't have all the trinkets and trophy wall on your uh, no. uniform oh, okay. no and all the medals and all the yeah. things no like, I was like, oh, this is the thing I can put in my uniform. It's going to happen. Like, I passed out for this thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put it on my I'm going to put it on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, awesome. Uh, in Iraq, I, I experienced a lot of Americans would be like, oh, really? The expert feel medical. But I just like, yes. And then they'll be like, in uh, like how many attempts? Well, one. <laughs> because <laughs> they do it uh, sometimes. They, like the American people would be like doing it maybe two or three times. So how many how many lucky. females ended up going through it with you? Just out of curiosity. Uh, it was me and I think was it two more captains, two or three captains. Did they end up making it? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That was uh, that was like uh, when we started, we were fourteen females. There was me, and then was a Czech female, like as the only international females. Uh, and I didn't know that I was gonna be the first international female ever get to get it i knew i was being going to be the first danish female to get it so i was focusing on that but at the parade when we got uh, because you will you will be like called up like name by name uh and there would be like this uh, general and our um, sergeant major and colonel would be like yeah shaking your hand and giving you a, a um, award and stuff and the general he was like Oh, did you know you were the first internet female to ever get this badge? Like, uh, no. And then he was like shouting it like to everyone and people were just like <laughs> going nuts. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. happened to the Czech female then? Uh, well, when we started uh, doing the, the, the test uh, week, she, uh, she got out on the first lane. So, okay. yeah, it was just me and all the Americans. How many of the 14 then finished? Was she the only one that dropped? Um. Well, it was me, and I think it was 
three more American females out of the females who did it. Wow. See. We, we, yeah, we started like 218 people and we finished, I think it was around 40. And that's very, that's a large number. Usually it's like lower, but so it was very good. Wow. I didn't realize the class size was that large in the very beginning. I mean, that's pretty huge to go from 200 plus down to 40. So no wonder that they were uh, saying that when they saw the FMB sewed on your uniform over there in Iraq. They're just like, holy shit. <laughs> I think a lot of people were just like, oh, oh she just sewed something on her uniform because she thinks it's medical. She doesn't know what it is. <laughs> but then <laughs> but then when they start talking uh, about it and yeah, so they would be like, oh, where do you get your EFMB? I was like, in Germany, in Graf. Oh, really? Yeah. When? Uh, in March. Oh, okay. And they would be like, because I, I don't see a lot of people wearing it because what I have read, it's like the second highest, like second difficult, uh, like award uh, batch to get in the U.S. Army. So it's not something everyone has. Um, yeah. yeah. Wikipedia has got it down as... Um... The next one higher to it is the expert infantryman badge, and the one lower uh, under it is the parachutist badge. Isn't that yeah. interesting? I didn't know about the parachutist, but I knew about the other because I was just getting ready to comment on that. But I, I thought that that's uh, kind of interesting too that you talk about it's still a school from 1965 and the way that they run it and such. You know, from uh, what you learn and everything and what they teach you and such like that. That you would think that. Again, it would modify over time. Yeah. But Air, Airborne hasn't really changed. No, well, I mean, you know? how, how many different ways can you do a PLF, Brian? I mean. Well, with the parachutes and stuff like that, there's no oh, technology well, yeah. they could put in there. But we're still using old <laughs> T10. Sometimes yeah. T11, if you're lucky. I don't think it really helps anything, but yeah. still going to eat did, crap. It didn't break you. Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't break your fall any better. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> think in the case of the danish army if i'm not mistaken you guys have pretty much eliminated most of your reserve forces and you're you have more of an active duty force and you're deploying a lot more often as well and yeah we we have like a uh, reserve but like most are active um and i think the reason why we deploy more is because we're a small nation so we're few people and it's easier for us to like get deployed well, it's still difficult for medical people because we don't have a lot of big missions going on. So there's not a lot of people getting deployed. Uh, it's more infantry going on, yeah, like uh, security uh, tasks and stuff. Uh, right. uh, it's not not like Afghanistan anymore. Um, yeah, so the so people, are, they're not fighting about getting the deployments, but everyone want to go. Uh, and if you're only sending, like, for example, free medics uh, every, sin, every uh, six months, uh, and you are 100, maybe 30 medics. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, you have to wait like a long time. But yeah, they they, they pick the, the good people, uh, the experienced people. So those with the FMB. Yeah. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sabina, so do you always get uh, attached or as part of a multinational task force when you deploy as Danish army? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Like we we don't do anything unless uh, like we follow the, the Americans. So so we just we don't do anything by ourselves. So yeah, we we always uh, work with like other nations uh, attached. I served I served yeah. with a Danish um, EOD in 2002 in Afghanistan as part of the multi, uh, multinational oh. EOD force, and we actually lost three or guys out there in March 2002. 
Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. So two Germans and three Danes uh, got blown up trying to strip um, a surface to air missile to take back as a trophy. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. that is tough. It's- with you guys being such a small military service and everything, too, I would have thought that the rotations would have been more, but it sounds like you're still sending a small, kind of equal size. I mean, three out of 100 plus. Sabina, just out of curiosity, um, do you have any stories from your deployment of when you kind of used medicine or kind of applied some of this unconventional thinking that we talked about to a situation you were in? Well, I, I didn't really push medicine uh, because... Uh, well, I was working at role one and two uh, in Iraq, and there's a lot of people there, uh, Americans and, and stuff. And what we do, we, we like picking up casualties in the ambulance, and we got them from somewhere. And the evac time uh, was not that long, so what I did in the ambulance was just uh, life-saving procedures like tonicase, IV, and stuff like that. Also, I also attended like the trauma teams and, and the OR, but it was mostly like doctors doing all the medicine uh, stuff. As a medic, you, you get kind of like pushed in the back. You're more like the working hands, uh, stop the bleeding, IV, IO, uh, assisting uh, emergency sur- surgical procedures and, and stuff like that. But there's so many people there all the time and so many experts about on that field. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's more like, well, like PJs when they are on the, um, the helicopter pushing medicine and, and stuff like that. But like multitasking was uh, was a big thing uh, because sometimes you had to, when uh, when I had like a casualty, I had to send a mist. I still have to stop a bleeding and have to calm a, a man down that was, uh, yeah, upset about what had happened to him. So... I think you learn to put a lot of stuff in boxes uh, so you can handle the situation. And, yeah, that's what I've I've experienced, yeah. Did you find the transition difficult when you came back from the deployment? Yeah, um, well, I, I think it's very hard to come back, actually. And, and this is my, my mission was a soft mission because we didn't go out of the camp. But you are, are a place where you're very important every day to someone, to some people. Uh, you have a task every day, a purpose, and you know people uh, rely on you. And then you come back, and everything, like all that, is taken away from you. And you just like one out of 130 people again. Yeah. And I think that's that's very difficult. Or also because I I have all the courses in the Danish Army, uh, the medical courses. So I actually I'm looking for new courses, like international courses, so I can like develop, get more experience, uh, get better to what I do, because that's what I always like seek. I I always want to like become better. I don't think you can get good enough. Like you can always become better. Uh, I think when you come home, the people back home, they they kind of, they they forget about you like for six months uh, and then you come back and they should maybe be better to like pick up on you. Like, oh, you need to do this because... I came back and for two weeks, there was not a plan for me. And I've been like every day for six months, there was a plan for what I had to do. And then I came back to another plan and that's very frustrating. And also the fact that you're not, you're not like treating people anymore because we don't do it as the, uh, 
how the Americans do. They can work on like clinics and stuff. We just stay in the unit and then we go on exercises and courses and do stuff at our vehicles, uh, equipments and all that stuff all the time. So we don't have any uh, patient contacts unless we go on exercise. And oh, all. wow. Okay. Yeah. So that was, that was very difficult for me. Um, still are. So I need to find something like a kind of new motivation because before it was always a course or fitness gold or the deployment and yeah, I need something new now. So I'm like, I'm on hunt to find something new. Well, maybe but. that's, that's where Brian can kind of help you out and send you to that, send the information on that other course. I don't know what it would take for you to get you in there, but yeah. So Sabina, one of the things I think might be helpful too is to, what are some of the advice for some of the people that you found that maybe has helped you? I know that right now you're kind of looking for maybe other courses and stuff, but has there been some things that you've done that, that's helped with that? Um, yeah, uh, not to sound cliche, but uh, I was I was very frustrated like a couple of weeks ago. And I was thinking, is this just me or what is this? Uh, it was not not like kind of depression or everything or anything, but just like, uh, so I wrote like an Instagram post, just like my, my thoughts and stuff. And I, I think like I got like a lot of responses and they were very good because people telling me, well, this is like total normal. And this is like what everybody's going through. Right. Uh, just, you need to find like a new goal. That's why I'm saying like, I have to find something new because I need something that's, that drives me and, yeah, I just need to find something new. But people telling me about their story and I, I read all my my messages I get and I get a lot of good messages. Uh, and people really like uh, telling me their stories and well, you could maybe you should try this and maybe you should do this and this. And I really think that helped me a lot. Might be a great thing for us to put out there in the team room, Scott, as well as what are some of the ways in which you've actually been able to, to make the transition and find ways to help you through some of that? Because I think it's not just the transition from deployment. In many cases, you know, a lot of folks end up having struggles as they transition out of the military. I think that's where we can help one another a lot as veterans or people who either on active duty serving or have served is to be able to offer that kind of coaching and advice and pass those lessons along. I think the advice that the, the advice that you got about finding a different purpose or finding something that you're passionate about is a really good piece of advice. I think the struggle is, is that you've got to try to figure out what that is now. So you're looking for the school, but in fact, it might be actually something entirely different, some place where you could immerse yourself and get the same kind of drive and energy level and everything else that you want out of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think you told me right. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a struggle though, right? Because I mean, it's about trying to figure out what that is now. It is. Uh, I was thinking the first when I just started thinking about what I maybe I should do. I was like, oh, is this like, you know, a crisis where I have to like, uh, do I need to like run a half marathon or something? But <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna go that far. But uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I need to find something. And actually, I used all day today to find courses, uh, also international courses, so I can, like, develop my skills, uh, get better. Because I've, I think it's like for medics, you can never get good enough. Uh, yeah. You need to, like, find something all the time. Uh, and also because things changes all the time. So you need to update your skills. It sounds like it's fairly easy for you to, to get on courses, Sabina. Is that a medic thing or is that a Danish army thing? Is, is there lots of opportunity to go on courses 
throughout the entire Danish army, or is that just a medic thing? Well, it's actually not very easy to get on courses, but if okay. you if you go into your boss like a lot and enough, yeah, I've never said this. <laughs> I, I thought, yeah. uh, at at some point, they will be like, okay, then. Yeah, well, if you can come with like a reasonable reason why you should have this course, uh, yeah. usually uh, you can get it. But sometimes you really have to push, and I think that's how it is like all around every army or military. The British, the, the British army is not like that. It's very, well, very difficult to get on any type of courses, especially something that's well thought of. Yeah, you know, so you you can go on the rubbish courses that nobody wants to do. Because yeah. you know, ultimately they need a certain number of um, I don't know fuel issue um, POL people as they call them in in the British Army. So you can issue out uh, diesel and, and petrol, but nobody wants to do that, of course. You have, know. But, have you thought yeah. about flipping and maybe flipping it over, Sabina? How about you become more of the person that reaches out and helps? pass on your knowledge and experience to say first responders like emergency medical team members or in passing on your training or in establishing a pre EFMB course, but maybe even make it not only what they could experience over there, but also maybe establishing something a little bit more harder and more difficult and challenging for the Danish army. It sounds like you could use a lot of your skills and knowledge and actually challenge yourself to challenge other people. I've been thinking a lot about that and it's something I really want to do also in the future if I have to stay in in this uh like in this uh, kind of lane mm -hmm. with army and medical uh because I really want to teach and I love teaching and also in Iraq we have uh, like our tech for medics they will come over and I would love like teaching them stuff and yeah, I, I really like to do stuff like that. I just need to know and figure out where I can do it and how I can do it. And that's what, I, what I'm, uh, I'm thinking about now. And the post, actually, I've posted on Instagram a while ago about what, I, what I'm what i supposed to do. A lot of people came with good ideas. And those ideas are also ideas I'm like considering now. Because I think Denmark maybe maybe be a small a too small nation to do stuff like this but if i can get maybe international and do stuff international that would be awesome and i think i can maybe reach that with like connecting with the network i i have now um just need to to find a way to do that but yeah it's, it's something i really want to do yeah for sure i don't know what you're planning on doing after you get out how much time do you still have left in the military um, I have a contract till I'm 35. I can always leave. Like the Danish army is pretty good with that. Like, but I have like guaranteed job till I'm 35, and then I can apply to when till I'm 60 if I want to. Wow! So um, they do it based on age, then, not based on number of years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay. And I'm very lucky because uh, I'm on a contract where I have civilian education. That means yeah. I uh, earn civilian education every month that I'm in. So right now, if I, let's say I want to go out and attend nursing school, the army will pay my full salary for the amount of time that I have earned up. So right now I have like uh, 44 weeks. That's like a bit more than a year. And then you can like buy some more uh, time. So instead of going uh, in Denmark, we, we, uh, we get paid to study, but it's very low, this, the study pay we get. But I will get full salary from the army 
while I'm attending nursing school. That's a that's a way they use cool. for their people to like, uh, well, you surf now, so like you transitioning out of the army will help you because maybe you have a family and you can't like your paycheck has to be the same or whatever. Uh, it's a good way to get uh, like the old veterans uh, out and like start a new life if they want to do that. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's wow. very great. It's, so there's no yeah, payback I'm, requirement then. There's nothing that says, okay, no. uh, oh, well, that's really good. Uh, so that's that's why I, I need like to find courses too because I can use my civilian education, uh, for example, in let's say in the UK or the US or whatever, I can attend a course and the army would pay for it like my salary and I can go there and yeah. That's do whatever really I want. good. Yeah. That's so cool. it's yeah. That's a and that's... it doesn't it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be army related or if I, if I want to be a mechanic, I could do it that or whatever. It's just whatever you choose. Yeah, it's no, very good. I think, you know, with us, it's uh, it's much better than even what Scott has but in the U.K., but we... We don't have anything. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Education-wise, the, the, there's nothing extra for education from service. It's still a little bit different than what, Sabina, what you're describing, though, and certainly far ahead of what both both of us are far ahead of what you've got there, Scott. Yeah, I, I, I do tell a lie. We, we don't get nothing... We get um, a resettlement package, which is valued at around £2,000, £2,500 when I got out. I think it's gone up to about £3,500 now uh, to do training. And then you get enhanced learning credits, which is um, when I had them was three grants of £1,000 each. But you could only pay for 80% of a course value with it. So... If it was less than a thousand pound, they'd only cover eighty percent. You had to pay the extra twenty percent. So, it um, it is something. Damn but, near, uh, damn near nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a lot you can no, do. No, because I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do with five thousand pounds. Well, when I for my resettlement when I left, I went to Thailand scuba diving for a month. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah, that was yeah. That's... Learning <laughs> learning how to blow bubbles that really helped you. I'm sure out there. Yeah, this... I'm gonna did the uh, the dive master course. So. Are there a lot of people out there that's asking you about that? Hey, Scott. Uh, so did you ever go to the Thailand scuba diving course and everything? We're looking for people who have. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, I, I no, got no, no, <laughs> no, no. But uh, <laughs> I I got a trade and and kind of I I didn't need to do formal training so. In the back of the booklet, there was all the adventure training qualifications. So I went and did the um, Paddy Dive Master course in Koh Tao in Thailand. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we get a saving too, uh, like uh, like the privates and land scrubbers. have like, well, we have a union in uh, in Denmark, like a working union. Yes, and it's very good. Like, yeah, I know a lot of people be like, what? Like for military? Yes, and they they awesome. But our uni union, they will um, they will like save money up for us each month. We are like hired after a certain amount of months. Yeah. And you will get that pay too, like tax free when you like start like end your military so we're, career. So we're we're talking full on union, like in the private sector, mm -hmm. but in the army. In, in the, the army, military. like yeah, wow. and they are like spe specific, uh, yeah, in the army. Like they know everything, all rules. And they're very good, and nobody want to mess with them. So if somebody says, "Well, I'll call the union," well, you have it your way then. Wow. So, yeah. 
it's very good. Like I know we're lucky, but uh, it helps 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 us out a lot. So well, yeah. I mean, you end up having a lot of that with union on the private side as well. But I've never heard of that within the military. That's uh, that's Ooh. definitely unusual. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think I think we're very lucky on on some points. Uh, but I just think that's that's how our I don't know how a country is like. We everything needs to be fair, and you need to you, like you, you have your rights and stuff, uh, even whatever mm. you work with. So I think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. there are some really good things that you just mentioned there, and we definitely don't have those within the states. That's for sure. No, um, the UK. Yeah, no, the UK. <laughs> and I would I would beg I would bet that if uh, someone from Australia was on, they would talk about the exact same thing. Now, and I said definitely not. Dig in. Sabina, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for calling and yeah, just love your show. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code Mentors for Mail or Mentors the number four M I L at SkeletonOptics.com, and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.